welcome again to another edition of our Lost in Science Summer Specials. This week we thought we would have a listen back to an interview Claire did with Barkanji woman Zena Cumston about an exhibition that ran last year called Emu Sky which was at the University of Melbourne. It was all based around traditional knowledge systems, first knowledge systems, uh, which were informed for thousands and thousands of years by uh, the people who have lived in Australia all that time. And the exhibition itself has finished, um, but the website Emu Sky is still up and it is still having new content added and it is still worth having another look at it, even if you've had a look at it before. Um, go and have a look at emusky.culturalcommons.edu.au um, or just Google Emu Sky Melbourne University. You'll find the website. Interesting stuff. The other thing that Zena has done since the interview went to air is published a book called Plants Past, Present and Future, um, authored with Michael Sean Fletcher and Leslie Head, which is all about uh, first knowledges and trying to understand the expertise and ingenuity of Indigenous Australians about the ecology and natural systems that they explored and described and lived with over the many thousands of years uh, that they've occupied the country that we now call Australia. So please stay tuned. Knowledge systems informed by careful observation and scientific methodologies and understanding have been a fundamental part of how Aboriginal peoples have thrived and shaped this continent continuously for over 65,000 years and counting. Now, a new exhibition, Emu Sky, at the University of Melbourne brings together First Nations artists and researchers and shines a light on some of these knowledges relating to agricultural practice, plant use, innovation, culture, and connection. And to talk to us about the exhibition, our guest on the show this week is curator of Emu Sky, Zena Cumston, who's a Barkindji woman, researcher, storyteller, and writer. And full disclosure, I love this exhibition and I do work at the institution that brings, has brought this exhibition to the public. But without further ado, Zena, welcome to Lost in Science. Thanks so much for having me, Claire. It's lovely to talk to you again. On Emu Sky, the name of the show uh, where did it come from? What is the emu in the sky and how does it relate to the broader themes of the show and knowledge systems of First Nations peoples? The emu in the sky is something that is really important to lots of mobs right across Australia. For this show, we've really focused on southeastern Australia particularly, and that's because we really wanted to tell the story specifically of the place um, i.e. the Parkville campus at the University of Melbourne and its belonging to country in a really, really powerful way. 
And so we haven't included Torres Strait Islander knowledges or people in the show for that reason, because it made a lot more sense to keep it confined within Southeastern Aboriginal culture, because whilst we're all extremely diverse, uh, there are many cultural connections right across the Southeast um, in our art making, in our ways of knowing, storytelling, even in our creative beings. So because this Emu in the Sky story is so important to so many mobs right across the Southeast, it seemed like a really great one to include in the show. Um, whilst we all have different stories associated with this, this happening in the sky, they all speak to the ecological ways of knowing and embedded knowledge that's in country. So country is sky country, it's sea country, it, not just the land. A lot of people sort of think that that country just means like a, a landscape. Country is um, all living things and even some not living things within a, a landscape. It's a way of animating country and really applying, um, I guess, the way we see country into like a, a more general understanding for other people to get as well. So we might have ancestor and creation beings, for example, that live within rocks and rocks to other people might seem dead. Um, we also have our ancestors around us all the time. So that's another part of country and our way of knowing country is these, I guess what some would consider non-living beings are part of that as well. So countries in the sky too. And the emu in the sky really um, exemplifies the way in which when we look out onto country, everything we see is a map for living. And so it's really important to, I guess, take the audience in right from the start of the show to help them to understand that non-Indigenous ways of seeing can be very different to Indigenous ways of seeing. And because of the erasures of colonisation that continue today, because colonisation obviously is not a point in time, but is an ongoing structure that we all have to work very hard to dismantle, we still don't know a lot about these knowledges. So Uncle Badger Bates, who's um, an elder from my country, um, I'm Barkindji and so is Uncle Badge. He was one of the first people that I got involved in the show and he has this beautiful lino cut called Emu Sky and that's where the title of the show comes from. And I guess what it really speaks to is it exemplifies those different ways of knowing. Non-Indigenous people might look in the sky and just see kind of a big black spot, whereas we look in the sky at that Emu in the sky and we can see the whole sky the dark and the light. And I guess it exemplifies our holistic ways of knowing, whereas, you know, non-Indigenous um, science might look for the stars and what they're doing. We kind of look at everything. And so the emu in the sky, I think um, non-Indigenous science calls it the Colsac Nebula. So it's just kind of really a big black hole. So I thought it was a really nice allegory for the way that sometimes people might look at our scientific practice and our ways of knowing and our embedded knowledge in country and not be able to even see it. They might just see a big black hole. But for us, it tells us what we should be doing on country to work in a sustainable way with country, to be nourished and to nourish, to have a reciprocity with country. So for example, on my country, the emu in the sky, when its head goes down, that's the time that we're allowed to collect emu eggs. And that's the only time that we're to do it. And in that way, I guess we're really um, following law and ensuring that we don't harm that really important animal, um, which is obviously a totem for many people and is also really important for the whole like ecosystem of our country. 
if we harmed emus and their proliferation, for example, many, many of our plants would not be reproducing. And then therefore we're actually hurting ourselves because if you look after country, country will look after you. So we have these laws and ways of knowing and the emu in the sky is a really beautiful way of taking people into that story. There are over 30 Aboriginal artists, as you say, from Southeast Australia um, and also Western Australia um, represented in the show. What are some of the Aboriginal innovations that are showcased in Emu Sky? I guess when um, we talk about innovation in relation to the show, um, there's a lot represented and we've really tried to take people on a learning journey so people can come into the show and just really enjoy the artworks for their absolute aesthetic beauty or they can go on the journey with us if they wish to. And there's a lot of information on the wall text, not in an overwhelming way, but I guess asking people to come along if they wish to know more. Um, And we've also got a really extensive website that um, we're adding things to all the time that are another way that our audience can really, um, I guess, take it to the level that they wish to in terms of their learning. So I guess in terms of innovation, one of the most striking pieces for me is Jonathan Jones' grindstones. They really speak to our innovation on country because without developing grindstone technology, there are many places in this place we now call Australia where people would not have been able to stay. And I really see our plant use, which is something that I've been particularly interested in through my research work, as the backbone of our ability to survive and thrive for the longest time imaginable. So, for example, on my country, um, we don't actually have rock and rock that we can use uh, for grindstone technology. But around 12,000 years ago, my people started using grindstone, um, as we always do, negotiated with our neighbours three or 400 kilometres away, and we have compacted sandstone grindstones that we um, brought in to be able to utilise all of the things around us to their best capacity. So being able to grind using a grindstone like grind seeds means that even in really, really tough times on country, when country really, really contracts, like not much water, um, animals not around to eat and lots and lots of plants not fruiting, you can get seed. And if you can get seed, you can grind seed and you can turn it into bread and all sorts of other really nutritionally valuable Um, things to eat so grindstones I know on my country have been really important for us to be able to stay on country even in really really intense times of contraction and Jonathan tells the story about how I guess large these technological innovations were right across Australia in terms of our story as a people and how we have survived over the longest time imaginable and Uncle Stan Grant Sr. speaks as part of a soundscape with that grindstone's work and he is talking to us about the abundance of country. So it's a really beautiful work in that it it really um, supersizes and the grindstones are supersized in the space. It really supersizes the understanding of how innovative we have been over time and how that's really, it's our scientific understandings our careful careful observation our innovation that has allowed us to be the world's oldest living culture i think we're lost we're not lost not even any short range radio signals yet except for a single very powerful radio emission of course a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment 
science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's, uh, it's mostly on the theoretical side. What's so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. you are listening to Lost in Science and we are in the middle of our summer series so we are listening to uh, an interview that Claire recorded last year in the middle of last year with Zena Cumston about a great exhibition that was on called Emu Sky. Uh, you were just listening to another thing that we have done fairly frequently on 
Lost in Science is that we kind of intersperse the show with science fiction music and themes and that piece of music was actually the theme song for an Australian series called Clever Man. Um, it was performed by AB Original and Gurumal and it's called Take Me Home. That was the extended version of that song. In keeping with our science fiction themes, I think it fits pretty well. If you haven't seen it, you should have a look around for it. It was on the ABC a couple of years ago, but definitely worth catching up with. But in the meantime, uh, let's get back to the interview with Zena Cumston. You did an incredible amount of research for the show, um, visiting the herbarium at the University of Melbourne as well. What did you find when you were going on that journey, especially at the herbarium, or what didn't you find? Well, originally the show was planned to be a collaboration between the herbarium and a group of Aboriginal artists. And so as a starting point, I went into the herbarium, as you say, and um, I spent a couple of weeks looking at um, many things across the herbarium. Um, I was really lucky in that Joe Birch, who runs the University of Melbourne Herbarium, is a really wonderful person and very generous and kind, and she really helped me a lot with what I was looking for. And after a couple of weeks, I really sadly realised that there wasn't any Indigenous knowledge that I could find within the Herbarium collection, despite the fact it you know, was a really long-standing collection, like I think over 180 years of people working to collect things. I was, I guess, naive in being shocked by that because I have worked in the museums and galleries sector long enough to know that we often aren't, I guess, represented in the collections in a way that's meaningful. Um, there's been a real silencing of our ways of knowing and I guess the specificity of country where, you know, a lot of the time collections will just say Aboriginal and won't tell you where that item has come from and therefore doesn't really carry any of the knowledge of that cultural um, item because we are so diverse and each country has its own knowledge systems and ways of holding it and very diverse communities. So, yeah, I was shocked that I found nothing, but then I realised I really shouldn't have been. I do feel that sometimes um, an aspect of that isn't really considered and that is that it actually hurts a bit to go into collections like that and to, to not see your culture represented at all and to see that some people have worked on the same country for 30, 40, 50 years and they haven't engaged at all, I find it quite shocking because even to, I guess, not believe in, um, in the knowledge we have of country is one thing that's like sort of through a deep ignorance, I suppose, but even the fact that there wasn't even any of our tools that we use to crack open seeds and to grind as part of those scientists' sort of undertakings in that one place seemed very, very strange to me because even if you can't understand our knowledge, I feel like people can at least understand the innovation of our, our tools and equipment that we've used for a really long time. So having found nothing, I realised very quickly that I didn't really want to put Aboriginal artists through the same thing as me, that disappointment and upset. And I really wondered about the story that we could tell because I don't really want to tell stories about big gaping holes. And then I guess the other problem was is that more and more as I'm getting older, I'm trying to think about all of my projects and how they benefit my community, my Aboriginal community. And this project would have benefited the herbarium a lot because Aboriginal people would have come in and applied their knowledge to the things that they were finding in the herbarium. And that's, you know, that's a wonderful outcome. Um, for the herbarium and I, I'm not a mean-spirited person that would ever not want that for people 
but unfortunately there's no reciprocity in that exchange or not enough for me. And so I um, went to Science Gallery who were auspicing the show and we had a really big talk about reciprocity and how this can benefit Aboriginal community members and that's when we kind of pivoted the show. So we do have one piece in the show that is a result of that time that I spent in the herbarium um, and that's some beautiful language posters that we made because the herbarium specimens themselves are artworks. They are absolutely so beautiful. And if people haven't seen them before, I really encourage you um, to get along to a herbarium that you have access to. And most of us would have access to at least one because these are public institutions and have a look because they speak so much to the maker. Um, I especially really loved the herbarium specimens that women made. They're very different to the ones that men make. But everyone has their own style, even though it's science and everything's supposed to be done exactly the same way. We know that there's no such thing as um, one way to do anything. And it's actually just a choice that people make. And those specimens really show me that when I look at them and how different they are. People love to think that science is written in stone and there's only one way to do it. And that's absolutely not true. Um, science is a series of processes that are choices by people that have been made and many of them have been ingrained over a really long time and it's important to have consistency most certainly. But we have to understand as well that some of these decisions have been made in times of really gross and inequitable power um, imbalances. So I think we do have to look at the way that we do things in science and we do have to be reflexive and look at our own practices within that realm and understand that science has actively for a really, really long time locked people out and we need to make sure that that doesn't happen in the future, that we have a diversity of voices because everything is stronger when you have more people coming together to make knowledge because it just is smart to listen to other people's ideas and innovations as you move along. So the Herbarium partnership didn't happen, but it was wonderful to be able to find a way to still make the project happen and for it to directly benefit um, Aboriginal community members along the way and the stories that we want to tell. And everything in the show, not one thing comes from the collections anywhere. It's all been made right now and it's all things that Aboriginal people want you to know about right now. And that's exciting to me. Nothing's been taken under gross um, imbalances in power. Nothing's been taken with, you know, problematic provenance. It's all right here, right now. Storytelling and connection to country is a really fundamental part of the Emu Sky show. And one work in particular that I think has a very long and incredible story to tell are the drill core samples uh, on display, collaboration with Associate Professor Michael Sean Fletcher. And they tell a fascinating story of caring for country and um, Indigenous fire practice. Can you talk us through that story, Zena? Yeah. So. Associate Professor Michael Sean Fletcher works at the University of Melbourne. I think he's called a paleoecologist. I'm not sure. But what he does is he looks at pollen and charcoal from deep within the earth and he can tell different things that were happening on country at specific times over a really long time period. So what he does is he drills down into the ground, takes these core samples, and they're often taken from underneath um, like billabongs because water <clears throat> apparently is really great for preserving those um, 
tiny, tiny little things that he's wanting to look at. So Michael's not an artist, but I have been lucky to work with him at the university when I was still there. And he showed me his core samples um, and I just thought they looked absolutely beautiful. The transitions in the soil and just the story that they tell of country and how important that is. And right from the start of this show, we wanted so much to reflect, uh, I guess, Aboriginal pedagogical practice, like meaning the way we do things and the way we think about things. And so I really wanted past, present and future to be simultaneous as it is within our culture. Um, it's more, it's not a linear sort of understanding. Past, present and future exist together in so many parts of our, our culture and our understanding of the world around us. And so this exemplified it beautifully because Michael Sean is looking at the past, he's reflecting on the present and he's speaking about how those past practices that he can unveil through those core samples can actually really help us in the future when we're looking at, I guess, ways to meet challenges of climate change such as, you know, catastrophic fire that we're experiencing. And you know, Michael's work really is talking about how some of the, the challenges that we face today aren't actually a result of climate change just on its own. They're a result of taking people off country. And so by looking at those pollen samples and those charcoal samples, Michael can tell us what sort of cultural fire practice was happening and what sort of, I guess, benefits to country it was having through the pollen that then comes in the next layer after that cultural burn. Um, and that's a really important story for all of us into the future. People are starting to understand about cultural fire and management of country and how important it is, and that it's one of the many tools at our disposal that hasn't really been properly reinvigorated and, I guess, played out across the country. It's not the be-all and end-all. We as Aboriginal people don't, that burden can't come onto us to be the ones that that work out how to to mitigate climate change but together it's one of the things that we can do is empowering people to get back on country and to fulfill their cultural obligations to look after country through things like cultural fire so the core samples look really really beautiful um, and they look like an artwork but really that they tell the story of past present and future and our knowledge of country and how much more it needs to be empowered and reinvigorated so, Zena, how can people find out more about Emu Sky? Yeah, thanks, Claire. I'd love people to get along if they are in um, Melbourne. It would be really wonderful to, you know, know that lots of people are experiencing the show and it's been made for all ages. So we even have text labels for young people. Um, so, yeah, family groups I'm hoping will come along too. But if you want to know more about the show, um, you can go to emusky.culturalcommons.edu.au and that's our website, but you can also just put in Emu Sky Exhibition, Melbourne University, and it will come up straight away. And so it's on Tuesdays to Fridays from 10 to 4, and then it's also open on Saturdays, and that's from 11 to 4. And the show runs right through until August 21st. It's just been extended. It was supposed to finish at the end of July, and now, yeah, it's until the end of August. So hopefully people can come along. And we've got um, some beautiful essays written by um, a diversity of um, black thinkers and black academics uh, and that's also on the website so if people can't make it to Nam to Melbourne then there's a way to engage with the show through that and that's going to be an iterative um, I guess resource where 
when the show's finished, we're also going to be uh, putting a lot more content up and more content up as we um, hopefully get into public programs and, and greater explorations of the show along the journey. Well, thank you so much, Zena, for joining us today, for sharing your knowledge and your expertise. And also thank you for curating this um, incredible, fascinating, important exhibition. And I do encourage everyone to jump online and check out Emu Sky. And that is all we have time for this week on Lost in Science. Thank you for joining us in Getting Lost. If you have any questions or suggestions for the team, get in touch with us by email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. You can send cheap tweets to us at lostinscience1 on Twitter, or you can find us on the ubiquitous Facebook Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.